came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. Governor David Patterson. What's going on in the state? Kathy Wild, the business community. How do they feel of things going on in our city? Bill Bratton about the New York Police Department. DA Ray Tierney, Suffolk County. More arrests to come. And one interesting story Dick Morris. What's going on with the presidential race? Lauren Green, a religious reporter in Fox News. She has a new book, what she has to say and what she wrote about it. And let's start off with Michael Stoller, what's going on in the real estate industry. Good morning, this is Mike Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning I have probably one of the most active, well-respected real estate developers, consultants in the state of New Jersey, my friend Deb. Tantliff, who is the founding principal of Tantum Real Estate. As opposed to me reading what Tantum Real Estate is, I'm going to ask Deb to tell me about it. Well, first, Michael, it's always a treat to see you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are a multifamily and mixed-use developer and development advisory firm in New Jersey. So we work on a range of projects. Do you, Are you allowed to come over the bridges and the tunnels? To- We're allowed, but we try not to. We, we really specialize in Jersey. Jersey is a very high barrier to entry market, and uh, the process is very different. And so when I do step foot on the other side of the river, I really feel like I'm out of water. <laughs> Okay. Um, so we work on a range of, of projects in a variety of capacities. I would say 20 units to 300 acres and everything in between all throughout the state, primarily focused on ground-up redevelopment and mixed-use. Now, you are a certified women's business enterprise. What does that mean? It means that uh, I'm a wholly-owned business and I'm a woman, and uh, there are a lot of benefits to being a certified um, business in that respect in terms of abilities to access financing and meet a lot of corporate and public diversity um, and equity you know, initiatives. And most of your work is residential development, correct? Yes, sometimes with a, a commercial component, but everything is anchored in housing. So let's talk a little bit about the developments that you've been involved with and what's happening in New Jersey now. Because always the big projects were in Jersey City, maybe even Hackensack and Hoboken, uh, what's happening today? So Jersey is seeing an influx of countless number of new construction multifamily projects, um, which was really spearheaded on the heels of our last round of affordable housing obligation. And so a lot of municipalities entered into settlement agreements to allow these projects to be built. For the layman, explain what that means. So uh, we are in dire housing shortage, hundreds of thousands of units short, And New Jersey municipalities each have a legal obligation to develop and and serve their communities with a certain number of affordable housing inventory that is a deed-restricted product for people making, you know, below an 80% average median income. And what's the average median income in New Jersey in 
it, 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 it changes. Is, it, it changes by market. So that that's also the challenge of doing these developments is everything is um, underwritten based on the incomes for the for that region. And what do the developers get in exchange of providing the affordable housing? So there's, you know, there are standalone 100% affordable housing projects, um, and then there are inclusionary that are market rate with an, an included component similar to what you have in New York as an 80-20 um, project. Um, you don't get anything other than your approvals <laughs> and the ability to do your job. Um, but as part of those approvals, you are frequently able to negotiate long-term financial agreements that benefit in the form of, of tax abatements and establish set rents, uh, set, set tax payments. Um, there are other financing incentives available uh, that allow you to, you know, have a little bit more of a sophisticated capital stack. Um, but it's really about helping the financial math of the deal make sense. What, what about the condominium world? How do you? Do There's there are pockets of condominium development in New Jersey. There is plenty of um, horizontal townhome and single family development. The condominium com uh, products are a little more few and far between. Um, they also, any, for sale and rental, all come with an affordable, an affordable housing obligation. Of uh, building units? Yes. On, on site and? Yeah, the trend has really been that they have to be included on site. Um, sometimes they are in the same building, sometimes they are a separate building. Um, but the, the process and the days of paying into a fund or developing them off site or rehabbing other stuff, uh, other inventory, um, is less less preferred at this point. Okay, before the show, we discussed uh, the transit-oriented or near-transit-oriented development. Want to explain that? Sure. So, you know, when people think of transit-oriented development, they think of trains. Uh, we have a lot of trains in New Jersey, but we have a lot more buses, um, and we have some light rail. Um, in terms of transit-oriented development, it is a it is a key indicator for investment um, opportunity. It is a opportunity to create critical mass. There is a good component of those transit-oriented development projects that actually benefit from their proximity and their transit network to bring people into Manhattan. Um, but they are as much about intermodal opportunities and accessing Newark or Princeton or other corporate centers. Um, but it, in, in New Jersey, as a mostly suburban state, it is really about creating critical mass around that mass transit. With regard to that, you've been uh, a co not a, a proponent or, I'd say, an advocate against parking requirements. If you want to explain the parking requirements for residential? They're too high. That's the simplest explanation. Um, our, our state requirements require, on average, um, just shy of two parking spaces per unit, regardless if it's a studio or <laughs> a three-bedroom. That, that, that becomes the blend on your project. Um, there are different ratios for each unit type, but on the average... Um, and the reality of it is, is that we we build too much parking because not everybody is is buying those cars. They much prefer walkable walkable communities and accessing their mass transit systems. And if we don't have to build that much as much parking, we can use the footprint for more housing, and we can use those dollars to build more housing as opposed and, and to you can contributing also, to our housing. Crisis. And you can also reduce the rent on the, on the properties. Absolutely, we you know I'm I'm involved with the real estate center at Rutgers. And we issued a white paper, and it shows that on average, if you eliminate and reduce your parking requirements, you could bring your rents down, you know, 4 to 5%. I'd like to thank Deb Tantliff for being here, and I'll see you next week. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is Governor David Patterson. Governor Patterson, what the heck is going on? Well, here we are on March 3rd of uh, 2024, and we're starting to get into the real campaign season. President Trump is running away with the Republican nomination. Joe Biden's sort of walking away with the Democratic nomination because he's unopposed. And I thought we'd talk a little presidential immunity. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court Tuesday uh, decided that they will hear arguments in late April or as to whether or not the president has presidential immunity for the time that he's in office or he would have presidential immunity for things that happened when he was previously in office. Now, I think that it's kind of an interesting question because you we do give our uh, highest ranking leaders leeway in a lot of different places but i can't see how this supreme court would come back and grant him that the other thing that i don't think president trump would like is if he wins it also means this presidential immunity for president biden so that'd be end of the uh, the impeachment proceeding against him so i think that this was I think something that the president did, you know, after the array of different lawsuits he's had to face, you know, you can feel like you're boxed in a corner. I felt that way when I was investigated as governor. So I understand that. But I don't think he can win this round. So what are we saying about President Trump? The Supreme Court speaking out like that, does it freeze some cases? Does it freeze all cases? Or what are you saying? I think it's just the general policy as to whether or not you could investigate or charge a president of the United States other than in an impeachment hearing. In other words, right now, we never really thought about these things years ago. You know, President Nixon and President Clinton, they went through impeachment hearings. And But if something happens now, I don't think you could immunize the, the president. He or she is a citizen of this country who has to face the facts, and President Biden and President Trump are facing them right now, and I don't think immunizing either one of them would help. Don't you think that the best uh, jury trial is the election on November 5th? Let both of them run and let the people, let 170 million people decide. Well, they're deciding on which one should be the president. It's just the popular vote uh, deciding uh, who is the president. That's, That's one thing. But in the law, the 170 million of us who are going to vote, we're not going to see what, how they've answered questions or anything like that. So I think that will be the referendum on who should be running the country. But I don't think it should be the decider of which one of them is telling the truth and which one isn't. I will tell you, I've listened to, to both of them. 
I don't know what the truth is anymore. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Anything else you want to bring up this Sunday morning? So earlier this week, Mayor Adams seems to have taken a turn where he is not going to fully embrace the idea of New York being a sanctuary city. He feels that if someone is arrested and charged with a felony, that we should be able to report it to ICE, and perhaps the person might be deported. Right now, as it stands, we're not uh, the city is not allowed to have that conversation with the federal government. I think that in a different time and in a different place, I think uh, New York City's government tried to as the Statue of Liberty does, open our arms and say, bring your dreams to me. But right now we're in a situation where we have nearly 200,000 migrants. We have migrants living in extremely crowded places and private homes because they were kicked out of the migrant shelters, and it's driving a lot of them into criminality. It's the only way they survive, and some of them are criminals who came here in the first place. So I think, once again, this is an example of Mayor Adams not sticking in adherence to a strict policy from day one. He has evolved, and he's involved to the point where I think his take on the migrant issue is better than anyone else was talking about. Governor Patterson, let me ask you, to the best of your knowledge, is the sanctuary law a real law, or has it just been practice? It's generally a policy. It's it's not something... It's not a real law. So it's all a bunch of, uh, pardon my language, crap? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So in other words, Mayor Adams, if he chose, he could put his foot down and say, that's it. That's it. I've had it. And I think that that's about where he is right now. And that's why he has talked about this earlier this week, about how right now in this place and in this time, that kind of benefit that we were allowing people, we can't do it right now. Governor Patterson, thank you so much for coming on this Sunday morning, and thank you for your wisdom, and God bless America. I just pray for our country. So do I, but it was great to be down here on a Sunday morning in the studio talking to you. Thank you. With us today is Kathy Wild. Kathy is the president and CEO of the New York City Partnership, one of the most powerful organizations in New York City representing hundreds of the most powerful corporations and companies in, in New York. Well, Kathy Wild things getting better in New York or give us give all New Yorkers an update. Absolutely. Things are getting better in New York. We are the second largest urban economy in the world, second only to Tokyo. And we have made a great recovery from the impact of the pandemic on many fronts, including creating many more jobs. So the business community is hard at work supporting the city and its growth, paying their taxes, and things are going well. We've also seen a real positive movement in the trend of coming back to the office. The numbers are slow moving up, but probably we're 72% of where we were pre-pandemic in terms of the number of people who are in the office every day. So that's a positive as well. I understand the tax money coming in is better than they expected. And tell us about the budget in the state, the budget in the city, and how the money is being spent. Are you comfortable? Is your uh, people comfortable? So the budget in the city, unfortunately, in the last decade or so, at both the city and state, the tendency among many of the politicians has been that more government spending is the solution to every problem. 
And we're going to reach the end of that game. We haven't got it yet. I mean, right now, uh, we're, our budget that the governor and the mayor have put out are balanced because we've still got strong revenues. As I said, the economy is strong, jobs are being created, so the revenues are coming in. But as long as spending keeps going up on the part of city and state government, there's an end in sight. The tax base will not expand infinitely to support that. In the last decade, mostly under Mayor de Blasio, city spending went up 52%. Taxes cannot keep up with that. I've seen that. I remember uh, uh, when I ran for for mayor in uh, 2013, the budget was like in in the high 40s, and all of a sudden it's over 100. Well over 100. Yes, indeed. And, and, And it's still not satisfying everyone. There are still big holes in the budget. There are proposals that the city government should somehow make up the rent payments for anybody who can't pay their rent, which the mayor's office estimates that'll cost $17 billion over the next few years. And they're telling the city council, no, we can't afford that. And there's a, and the city council overrode the mayor's veto and passed it anyhow. They're now in court. So these are the kind of things that are going on. And so while today we have a balanced budget because the mayor has worked hard to hold the line on spending, if we aren't careful, we're going to end up in the same kind of hole that we had in the 1970s. And then the city will have no resources to do anything. I had Kathy Hochul on my Sunday radio show a couple of weeks ago, and we learned that she moved to the Upper East Side, uh, I guess maybe during the week or something. Uh, and I said, I'm glad to hear it because then she gets first view uh, about how people feel walking around the city at night. Uh, what do you think? I mean, what I said is people are scared to work to midnight. You know, our stores used to be open at midnight and people uh, are scared to walk around at night after dark uh, to go to restaurants. Do you give me your, your thoughts? Well, I'm not scared to walk around the city. I'm comfortable doing it, but I understand problem and certainly the violent incidents on the subways are really really a big concern now they're now installing cameras they've been able to catch people quickly because they've got cameras even in the subway cars and that's a big improvement and governor hochel has been very supportive of providing more resources to the city for police in the subways and for uh trying to get the laws amended so that we make sure that people who are really dangerous and bad actors are either in mental hospitals or in in jail. The other thing is there's been talk that a lot of people have been moving. Uh, The number was like 525,000 over since 2019. Uh, You think that's slowing up or you you think it's going to reverse itself? Can we get people back? Well, we're going to see the latest numbers in March for last year. But between 2020 and 2022, yes, we had more than half a million people move out of the city. We had like 70,000 move in and, and, and we had some births. So the net loss in population was about 468,000. That's a lot of people to lose because we need, we need to continue to attract talent to this city. So that's a a concerning thing, and it's happening in two ways. One, people who can't afford to be in the city anymore. Uh, The average rent in the city is $3,400 a month now for an apartment, and who can afford that, especially young people, the young talent we're trying to get here, who can afford $3,400 a month? It's tough. 
the other people who are moving out are our big taxpayers. We've had four times the number of high earners, millionaire plus, move out of the city. And the folks who earn over a million dollars are responsible for 42% of our income tax payments. So we've got to stop that hemorrhage of people both on the low end who can't afford to live here and on the high end who who don't want to carry the highest tax burden in the country, which is what New York City is today. Well, the other big item is when people hit 75, I I don't want to say I'm hitting it, but when people hit 75, a place like Florida doesn't have a... uh, State tax. You're going to go to a state tax, right? A state tax, yes. Exactly. No, that is a big issue, and we want rich people to stay here to support our museums and our hospitals and our other forms of philanthropy to pay taxes here. We have right now, the the numbers from 2022 are that half the people who make more than a million dollars that earn their living in New York are actually non-residents. So they're paying on their earned income that they, the paycheck they get from New York, but all their other wealth, we're not taxing because they live in another state. We got to do something about that. You mean if if somebody moves 181 days, 183 days, whatever the number is, to Florida, then I guess it doesn't we help. We lose. We lose much any, of their taxing ability. Yes. Any update on congestion pricing and any update on the MTA raising fares? So far as I know, there's no immediate plan to raise fares. That's, there's, an, there's this long-term program where fares are gradually raised over time that the MTA adopted, but they just went up a bit, and uh, that will continue. But I don't think we're going to see an, any, un, any surprises on the fare box side, which is important for the affordability of our city. On the congestion pricing, the MTA is having final hearings over the next couple days next week. And after those hearings, the MTA board will be voting on a plan that has one charge a day that during during the daytime hours, cars that come into the city will have a total of $15. Hopefully that is going to both reduce traffic substantially and get more people onto mass transit. And the proceeds are going to be used to improve, exclusively used to improve our transportation services. So this is, yes, it's another tax, but right now the people who drive into the city are only carrying about 13% of the revenues going to pay the cost of the transportation system, and they're, by and large, the people are in the best position to support it. Most of the costs are paid by fare payers and by business through the payroll tax. So we're all contributing, and this way the drivers who drive into the city will be contributing their fair share, assuming the MTA is able to act on this and that the congestion pricing gets through the lawsuits that have been filed, which I think it will because this has been many years in the process. There have been lots of federal approvals we had to go to. So we don't think there's a legal basis to contest congestion pricing. Nobody likes it before it happens, but if you can quickly move around the city after it's in place, and if you can save on overtime of, for deliveries, et cetera, I think people will, be, will, will turn around and say, why didn't we do this a long time ago? Kathy Wilde, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the update, and we'll catch up with you again uh, real soon. Thank you, John. 
Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back right after this break. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is the former police commissioner of the NYPD and Bill Bratton. Everybody really trusts in what he has to say. Commissioner Bratton, a lot of people are concerned. They don't know if they're, if they're coming or going. Well, they should be concerned, John, that people you're talking about are the residents of New York City, the 60 million tourists that visit that city, the 3 to 4 million people that come in and work there and go to school every day. Uh, what they should be concerned about is the growth in fear of uh, crime disorder in the city. You know, some of the numbers are looking good, murders and shootings, that there are other areas that are very problematic. One of those is uh, subway crime and disorder. Uh, the department has recently surged hundreds, if not thousands, of officers into the subway once again. One of the things we know is uh, if you put cops uh, where they need it, you're going to have a reduction in crime. Well, the subways certainly need those additional cops. But the problem is there are not enough cops in New York City. Uh, I saw an article this morning in the paper about uh, they were celebrating that the cuts that the mayor had talked about in the budget were going to be restored. But according to this article, that what is not being restored is the hiring of new classes so that there's some sense that within a year or two, the department may be as low as 30,000 headcount. We have not seen that headcount in decades. I had 38,000 cops when I was police commissioner. As recently as 2016, I had 30, almost 36,000. The department's down around 33,000. Uh, we're wearing these cops out. They're frustrated, and uh, there's just not enough of them. But the city council is not willing to fund the police department adequately. And that is very troubling. Very, very troubling. We are still, still losing people out of New York City that uh, are concerned about their safety. I mean, I, I walk around at night. I'm concerned when it's do- after dark. And I got some politicians that are telling me, oh, they have no problem walking around. <laughs> well, they must be walking around with uh, blindfolds on. That uh, I'm reminded of uh, the current situation in the city with it. Cops are trying so hard. I'm in touch with them all the time. A lot of ingenuity, a lot of creativity, but there's just not enough of them. They're still not getting enough support from the rest of the criminal justice system. This criminal justice reform and bail reform act has been disastrous for the city. But I'm reminded of an old New Yorker cartoon from 1990 when I first got here. And it shows this fellow looking up at a sign, and the sign says, High crime area, run. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, there are too many areas in New York City where we need to put those signs up because there are still significant areas of high crime. We're not going to get this resolved without, one, more cops, two, without this city council in this legislature effectively recognizing that the reforms are not working, reforms that were intended to benefit the criminal and not the victim. And who's now benefiting? The criminal, not the victim. And that, that is uh, why there's so much fear in the city at this particular point in time. And it should be. You know, Mayor Adams is, is using, talking about what's going on with the city council and et cetera. But what happens if the mayor puts his foot down? What is the city council going to do to him? Well, the intricacies 
theories of how New York works or doesn't work, particularly politically, is that the mayor has great power, particularly in setting the budget allocation of resources. Uh, he allocates resources to district attorney's offices, for example. But this city council is now made up of basically uh, a majority, a significant majority, of radical left. There is no longer a middle at the city council. There are some to the right, but the vast majority to the left. Mayor Adams is pretty much a centrist, but it's him against the mob. And the mob at city council, they don't get it. That's, uh, they, they really do not. That uh, They refuse to admit that so much of what they're advocating for and implementing is not working in the city. The headlines tell the story every day. Well, some crime is down. A lot of other crime is up. And the department, low morale, understandably, it feels beleaguered. Plus, they're losing so many seasoned veterans. We have now a very young workforce in the NYPD without many years of experience because the turnover has been so great. And that is problematic. Despite all the advances in technology, despite all the advances in capability, we have a very young police department. A lot of the experience is so necessary has gone out the door, and more will go out the door. One of the problems with all this overtime they're spending in the subways, for example, great for a short period of time, it gets crime down, but you wear the cops out. They don't get days off, and they make so much money in overtime that they will retire at the end of the year because they worry that the next year the overtime won't be there. And in New York City, their pension is based on their last year of salary. So if they're making a lot of money in overtime this year, they're worried that if they were to retire next year, they're not going to uh, have the same retirement benefits. So there's so many disincentives to stay in the NYP right now. And that's going to cause a, a problem in the budget in the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any advice to the citizens of New York? Well, isn't that the truth that uh, you heard me uh, on your show use a quote from Ed Koch after he lost his last bid for the election to mayor when asked about it? He said, well, look, the voters have spoken. Now they must be punished. Well, the voters of New York, a very small majority of them who come out to vote in the primary and thus end up influencing significantly what happens in the general election, those voters just don't get it that they're destroying the city. They're dissembling it a brick at a time with the, the crazy laws they're supporting and the politicians that they're electing. That ultimately, who do you blame for the way New York is going? The voters, that small majority who do vote. Who do you also blame? The voters who don't vote, which if they were to turn out, the centrists and others, they would be the majority. But instead, they allow the minority to effectively rule the city. And look what we're getting. Commissioner Bratton, thank you so much for coming on, and, and let's pray for our city again. Thank you so much. Well, uh, th- th- thank you for allowing this event, John. I wish I could do more than just that. What is today is Raymond Tierney, the Suffolk County DA, and he has made great progress out there. And I hear that there's updates of what's going on in Suffolk County. Raymond Tierney, uh, tell us, uh, give us an update on uh, what's going on. Well, hi, John, and thanks so much for having us. Well, um, you know, this month we had a Bloodhound Brim uh, takedown, which is a subset of the Blood Street Gang. Uh, we, in, we had a 103-count indictment charging 31 members and associates of the Bloodhound Brims uh, with uh, a number of crimes, including conspiracy to commit murder. 
the, uh, as well as the, the murder of Kimberly Midget, as well as 18 total shootings in uh, Suffolk County from August of 2021 through uh, February of 2024. And we charge these individuals with conspiracies. So not only did the shooters uh, get held responsible, but also people who helped the shooters and who planned the shootings, uh, including the national leader of the Bloodhound Brims, an individual uh, by the name of uh, Latique um, Johnson, uh, who is in jail in California and who was uh, masterminding a lot of these shootings. You know, I, I remember just a few years ago, all the gangs were gone. Are the gangs back? Well, you know, it's it's very difficult uh, because they they re um, you know they sort of regenerate, but the the gangs ha are are unfortunately um, loud and proud in uh, both Nassau and Suffolk, uh, and they work together. So the good thing about this uh, takedown is we work with our federal partners, we work with our great partners in Nassau County, uh, DA and Donnelly, as well as um, the Nassau County Police Department, uh, and we were able to charge um, the um, the homicide in. Uh, of the 44-year-old school teacher Kimberly Midget, who was a victim of uh, false, uh, you know, uh, mistaken identity, unfortunately, and gang members killed her. So the Nassau County um, DA's office charged uh, them with that murder. We've charged them with conspiracy here in Suffolk County, and we're working together uh, to dismantle these gangs. Wow, that's a, that is a wow. I mean, I, I must say it. And uh, uh, how is uh, the drug problems in Suffolk County? Because I've talked to so many people last week, there are a lot of drug problems all over the place. And uh, give us your report on that. Yeah, unfortunately, in, in Suffolk County, just like New York State, just like the United States, we have uh, these uh, cheap designer uh, drugs such as fentanyl uh, pouring in over our border, uh, and they're inundating our communities. They're incredibly dangerous, uh, and we're feeling the effects of it. Uh, 2022, we had 399 um Overdoses from uh, fentanyl alone, which is insane, and uh, you know we have to keep on, we have to keep at it, and uh, but we also need some help from our federal partners. What else is going on in Suffolk County that you want to tell people about? Well, we also have uh, uh, we have the uh, the the trial of the Schechter School, which was uh, a school where an, an individual. Um, he uh, stole millions of dollars from the private school, from the, from the children, uh, and used it for, uh, allegedly for his own use. So, uh, so we're trying that uh, individual. And, you know, we're trying to set uh, the tone in Suffolk County that uh, if you um, commit crimes, if you steal from your uh, neighbor, if you uh, hurt your neighbor, harm your neighbor, uh, we are going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law, notwithstanding what might be happening in the rest of the country. Uh, any updates on that uh, uh, that Gilgo Beach uh, situation? So yeah, so we recently uh, we recently charged the fourth murder. So uh, all of the uh, the four uh, victims, originally known as the Gilgo Four, they've been uh, the defendant has been charged with uh, allegedly having committed all four of those murders. Uh, last time in court, we filed some some DNA evidence, which is cutting edge DNA evidence, uh, and. Um, uh, which shows uh, that the, the uh, that hairs left at the scene on on three of the victims uh, belong to or were consistent with the genetic profiles of the defendant, the defendant's daughter, and the defendant's wife. So we look forward to litigating that in court. Uh, but in so doing, 
uh, we're going to be one of the first jurisdictions in the United States to use this particular uh, DNA technology. So it's uh, pretty exciting. Uh, Suffolk County DA Raymond Tierney, thank you for, for everything you do to keep uh, Suffolk County safe. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Dick Morris. He was an assistant uh, to uh, President Clinton, one to President Trump. Dick Morris, what the heck is going on right now? Well, this was one of the most incredible weeks because Donald Trump completely solidified his control over the Republican Party and ultimately over the country. He forced McConnell to resign. McConnell obviously would not have quit if it weren't for Trump winning all of these primaries. And uh, he's set to win the nomination on Tuesday in Super Tuesday because he'll win all of those races. But the other thing that's going on is that the Republican Party has now totally changed its approach in Senate elections and is poised, I think, to win the Senate with good with, with a good margin. What's happened is there's a guy named Steve Daines, who was the senator from Montana, Republican, who's now the head of the Republican campaign committee in the, in the Senate. And he is a very practical guy, not an ideologue, and very committed to winning the, winning the Senate. And he's formed a coalition, really, with Trump where the two of them are making sure that the Republicans win the control of the Senate. Gaines uh, uses his power to get good people into the race and force people who can't win to leave. And then he uses Trump's endorsement, which Trump lets him wield, as his as method of power. So, for example, there was a big situation going on now in Montana, which is where Gaines is from, but that's not relevant. But there's a big fight going on in Montana to challenge John Tester, the uh, incumbent senator, the Democrat from Montana. And uh, the and Gaines and the Republicans recruited a real superstar, a guy named Tim Sheehy, who is a that combat veteran who lost much of his, his whole face, was destroyed, really, uh, by a roadside bomb in Iraq. And a uh, very courageous guy and a very good guy. And uh, the problem was that there's a congressman there, Matt Rosendale, who wanted to run for that seat, and uh, he would have faced Sheehy in a primary. And uh, a primary of that sort would be so expensive and so damaging that it probably would help Tester get reelected. So Gaines called Trump, and Trump came in and endorsed Sheehy. And in the endorsement statement, he said, you know, I like Matt Rosendale. He's a good guy. I endorsed him last time. Uh, but if he'd run for the Congress, not for Senate, uh, I, I think that would be great, and I could support him. And that same day, Rosendale backed out of the Senate race and announced he's running for Congress. Wow. So Trump succeeded in just in getting the, the guy out and another guy in. And it was incredible. So Don, Donald Trump still wields a lot of power. Oh, a vast amount. And, he's, and really, he's working now with James where Dane sets up the deal and then Trump uses his endorsement as a cudgel um, to force people to do what he wants. And he's, who, who, Dick Morris, who's going to be majority leader following uh, November? Well, a Republican is. <laughs> I don't know who, uh, and there'll be a fight over that. But the main thing here is that the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate will be the majority leader, not the minority leader, because the Republicans are picking up significant seats in the Senate. One of the other things Dane did was he 
got a rhino named uh, Hogan, Larry Hogan, who was the two-term Republican governor of Maryland. And he was sitting by, not doing anything. We Danes got a hold of him and persuaded him to run for the Senate. But there's a vacancy in the Senate because Cardin, the senator from Maryland, is retiring. Now, Maryland is a totally Democratic state. There's no way in hell a Republican can win that. But Hogan was a very popular governor uh, because and he was basically a rhino. He didn't like Trump. He at one point was going to run against Trump. And the kind of Republican that could win in a state like Maryland. So you're predicting so, it's possible that Hogan can win Maryland? Yeah. And that, that's a seat that the Democrats never thought we'd, we'd pick up, but we may pick it up. And there's just a whole new game in town. The column I just wrote, which is the Trump is shepherding the MAGA movement from purity to pragmatism, from purity to victory, really. And without abandoning our principles, he's making sure that we put up only candidates who can win and that the candidates who can win get their nominations without primary fight. And that is a huge, huge new thing. So you feel that the majority is going to go in the U.S. Senate, is going to go to uh, Republicans. Uh, the yes. Republicans? You know, on, uh, what was it, Thursday, uh, both the Trump and Biden went Biden. to the uh, border in Texas. What do you think of the results are going to be of that? Well, I think that Trump is really transforming the immigration issue into the major issue facing the country. It used to be an issue that was really important to the border states, but now it's important to everybody. Trump has, in fact, taken the crime issue and made it into the immigration issue. And it's a very important maneuver and a very good one. And uh, Trump deserves a lot of credit for being able to pull that off. You're going to be on at 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock today. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell people? Yeah, there is. Uh, the Supreme Court has really come through in a big way for Trump. And I think his legal problems are not going to stop him from getting elected and will may not even become significant before Election Day because the court has taken steps that will ultimately delay the process until after the election. And then Trump will be able to win without a problem. This was Dick Morris. week. Thank you. Dick Morris, I'll be listening to you at noontime today, and uh, uh, it's good to catch up, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, man. With us today is Lauren Green. She is the Chief Religion Officer and Correspondent for Fox News, and she's been with Fox for 28 years, is it? 23? i got to do my calculations. Uh, well, uh, Lauren, tell us. <laughs> I have 28 years. I was actually the first on-air person hired for Fox News Channel. So the, per, the first person you saw, you know, the first people you see on the air, I was, uh, I was the first person hired for that. Um, so, yeah, 28 years, 1996. I can still remember my start date in 1996, uh, August 5th, 1996. Yeah. You wrote a new book, The Light for, yep. for Today. This, uh, tell us yeah. uh, why you wrote it and uh, what is it about? Well, this is actually a devotional, which is just in time for Lent. Um, of course, the Greeks are having Lent uh, a little later this year. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Easter is May 5th. But for you know, Catholics and Protestants, uh, we're, we're now really in Lent. And this is a 365-day devotional. And this is something that is personal for me because I read devotionals every day. I read the Bible every day. And what I found um, after I wrote my first book, Lighthouse Faith, is that 
you know, being close to God every day is something that you really almost have to think about. You have to sort of really get yourself into the mode of thanking God for your life, thanking God for what happens during the day, and really understanding how God is working in your life. Um, So after I wrote Lighthouse Faith, I began writing these sort of thoughts for the day and kind of posting them on Facebook. And then Uh after about years. Yeah. After about two, three years, I had like over 450 of these. And I was just, I don't know what I'm going to do with these. Maybe one day I'll write a devotional, who knows. And then like about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, uh, someone from Broad Street approached me at the NRB, which is the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And she said, you know, have you ever thought about doing a devotional? (laughs) Well, it just so happens that I've got these thoughts for the day, and I think they could probably be edited very well into a a nice devotional. So that's how it came about, yeah. Wow, and uh, I'll tell you, um, I am uh, the highest layperson in uh, in America's, uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church, and and I I guess I I do a lot of religion, and I also uh, help uh, put together uh, the ecumenical portion of it with uh, the Catholic Church and the Jewish community. And it's, yep. I, I, I enjoy doing it because I personally believe there is a God because I yeah. think we're much too, we're much too complicated that, that we didn't have, there wasn't a creator that created this planet Earth and everything that goes along with it. The, the whole idea about is there a God or is there not a God, and a lot of people don't realize that there are many, there are actually some very strong proofs of the existence of God, and, and many of the, the strongest come from science, that in fact, I could just talk to you about, you know, so the, the, Kalam, the cosmological argument, which is something a uh, 12th century Muslim actually figured out, and it's a very simple argument, just three points. It says whatever exists has to have a beginning, so the universe exists, so it must have a beginning. So that's basically it. Centuries later, Dr. William Lane Craig, who is an analytic philosopher and, and um, mathematicians and, and, and more degrees, so I can shake a stick, actually, he has upgraded the, the, the argument to where he actually has written books. They're scientific proofs. It's very, very interesting what he's come up with. But then there are other proofs, too. There's the teleological argument, the fine-tuning argument, and that one, to me, is basically, is, it blows my mind because there are just like a hundred like dials of our natural world are have to be set so specifically that if even one of them is off by like a million, 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 the world would just not exist. Are we here by chance? Yeah, you could, you could actually kind of say that, but what science has shown us is that the more likely scenario is that it's intentional and someone It's a it creator. There was a creator, no matter whether you, whether you want to call him God, whether you want to call him anything you want, there was a creator. It's impossible you, to create the planet Earth. Yes. The Apostle Paul already said in, in the sense that he says we all know there's a God. We all know that there's a God, but sometimes we suppress that truth because, it, you know, well, think about it. It's too traumatic to even think about that there's a God because no one is objective when it comes to whether or not there's a God because we're, it has such a great impact on us. If we, if there's a God, you know, then all of us are subject to that God. So, so you know, why of, should people buy your book? Give me, a, a, what does your book talk about? 
talks about everyday kind of scenarios. What it does is that every day, every day of the of, of the year, you can there is a scripture that heads it. There's kind of an idea that's behind it, and then a, a little scenario of something that happens in everyday life. And I think that's what's important about devotionals, about walking with God, is that you see God in the everyday. Understand that there's a Creator God, right? So He created everything, even natural processes. So you know, like for instance. You know, the first miracle that Jesus performed, was, it was the wedding at Cana, in, and he turned water into wine. That's the very first miracle he performed. But one of the things that you look at, you know, this is, actually comes from C.S. Lewis and Pope Benedict and pointing out that, you know, God turns water into wine all the time. It's called rain, and the grapes grow. You know, the vintner takes the grapes and ferments them, and, and then that becomes wine. That's the process that we're involved in, because God creates natural processes in, for, in order for us to live and to serve Him and to glorify Him. Can He do miracles and do supernatural things uh, outside of a natural process? Absolutely, He can. But the, the way to really understand Him is through just the natural everyday life that we live. It's, and it's really amazing to think in terms of that, because it's just so simple that way. Lauren so, Green, so I'm going to read your book for sure. The name of the book is Light for Today by Lauren Green. You can buy it at well, Amazon, and you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, and, and I urge everybody, if you believe in God, buy the book. Lauren Green, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you so much, and have a blessed day, John. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.